Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hi, welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, your host, and today we have the type of story that's going to make you want to punch a hole in your wall, so buckle up. Before I tell you about it, I actually have another sister anecdote to read to you. Remember how we did Sister Month and we learned all about different types of sisters ranging from heroic to spooky, and I asked for sister anecdotes? Well, I received one from Carrie Ann, who has an anecdote about her half-sister, though she says she doesn't even consider herself half-sisters with her sister, but she just wants to throw that in there to show how deep their connection is. Okay. So here's what Carrie Ann says. She says, We grew up in a house with a long row of forsythia bushes lining along our property line. When I was about nine or ten years old, my neighbors brought over a Ouija board, and we huddled under the bushes, which formed a long tunnel. While playing, we asked if any of us would be hurt that summer. It moved to yes, And at that very second, my sister ran out of the house screaming that she had just sliced open her leg. She was not playing with us, was nowhere near us, and no one would have had any idea she was just injured. I never played with a Ouija again. Sisters, sisters, (laughs) something spooky's going on with sisters. (laughs) Am I right, guys? All right. If you have any more spooky sister anecdotes, you can always email them. I feel like I will just throw them in whenever I get them because sisters. Am I right? Oh, one one more thing I keep meaning to tell you and I keep forgetting. If you've been here listening from the beginning or if you've listened to my whole back catalog, do you remember Tilly Devine? We're sort of obsessed with her. She was a crime queen in in uh, Sydney, Australia in the 1930s, 1920s through 40s, basically. And she had this arch nemesis and they like were rivals and tried to see who could own the most Pomeranians. Anyway, I received an Instagram message from Tilly Devine's relative. Isn't that cool? I just want to share that with you. Um, It was really cool to hear from her, and I'm glad she reached out. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to episode 12, because it's a pretty rollicking one, unlike the one we're going to talk about today. Okay, today's episode was requested by my nearest and dearest, my cousin Molly, who lives in St. Louis, which is where some of this or this action takes place around that part of the country. Molly, I love you. Molly's getting engaged and is getting married in October, and I can't wait to go to that wedding. It's going to be my first post-pandemic wedding, and I cannot wait to eat appetizers and dance. Anyway, we're going to talk about the story of Pam Hupp. Now, you probably sense, if you've read my books or listened to my podcast, I can usually find something to empathize with in these women. Sometimes you might say I find too much to empathize with. I find that the deeper you go into these stories and the more information you find, these women turn from sort of monstrous caricatures into real people and you kind of see how they tick and you kind of understand why they did what they did, even if you disagree with it strongly. And I can usually locate some empathy, some humanity for these people. But to be honest with you guys, Pam Hupp, just makes me furious. Just makes me furious. Oh, 
what an incorrigible person. What a case. I kind of hope you have no idea what I'm talking about and are coming to this fresh because if you're coming to this fresh, the top of your head's about to just like pop off. Even if you're not, I think there'll be some details in here that maybe you haven't heard. So yes, we are going to get into the case of Pam Hupp from Missouri who, um, her let's see, her quote-unquote active years, I guess, were... 2011 to 2016. So this is all very recent, very fresh, and some stuff is still ongoing. All right, should we get into it? Let's go. It was a lovely spring day in 2019, and Pam Hupp was complaining to her husband, Mark, on the phone. The world was against her, she said. Everyone misunderstood her. We've all had phone calls like that, right? Times where we call up our partner and force them to listen to us grumble and groan. But this wasn't your average, oh honey, nobody understands me, can we get takeout tonight, type of call. This call was being recorded because Pam was calling Mark on a prison phone. Mark wanted to know why Pam wasn't pushing for a trial. She was clearly innocent. He knew that. She had told him that she was innocent over and over and over. So why wouldn't an innocent woman want to go to trial? Why had his sweet, innocent wife taken a plea deal that put her in prison for the rest of her life? Pam had an answer for him, of course. She said that she couldn't have gone to trial because everyone was spreading lies about her. It didn't matter that she was 100% innocent of literally everything. People were lying about her because they just wanted their 15 minutes of fame. I can present whatever I want and they can present it in a way that they want, she said, and throw in all the other stuff too. And it looks like, holy shit, who is this person? That's what it looks like right now. It's so messed up and tainted that it looks like, you know, I'm Ted Bundy. To be perfectly fair, no one in the press was calling Pam the latest Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy got a whole lot of compliments in the press, but Pam was getting skewered. She was being called a blonde, middle-aged Midwesterner and a suburban woman with no criminal record. No one was glamorizing her the way they glamorized Ted Bundy. But Pam did have one thing in common with Bundy. When his crimes were discovered, people called him a serial killer. And now people were calling blonde, middle-aged Pam Hupp a serial killer, too. When serial killers enter the conversation, people can't help turning to the old nature versus nurture debate. Are you born a serial killer? Or does a terrible life turn you into a serial killer? I usually fall on the side of nurture-ish. So many serial killers have horrible childhoods, histories of abuse, head injuries. But Pam Hupp, honestly, she seems like more of a nature gal. Born this way, so to speak. 
Her childhood was, at least on the surface, absolutely fine. She was born in 1958, two years after Catherine Pelegi from the last episode, a white Catholic kid from Delwood, Missouri, which is about 20 minutes north of St. Louis. She had two older siblings, one younger sibling. Her mom was a teacher. Her dad worked at Union Electric. Pam had friends. She was a high school cheerleader. She was always up for a good time, was boy crazy. Her friends remember that she never got involved in any drama, which is honestly pretty impressive for a high school girl. If we go over her childhood with a fine-tooth comb, we can find one thing that might qualify as hardship. Apparently, Pam's mom wasn't always super nice to her. She could be a bit cold, people remember. Sometimes she made little digs at Pam to try and improve her. And surely this devout Catholic mother wasn't happy when Pam got pregnant after her senior prom. But as far as deep, dark childhood secrets that warp a person's soul into the soul of a killer, that's about all we've got in the case of Pam Hupp. So like I said, Pam got pregnant at the end of high school. And so instead of going to college like the rest of her friends, Pam and her high school boyfriend got married. They got an apartment and they had their little girl, Sarah. Pam's high school friends kind of felt like Pam resented them just a bit for partying and studying and living the college life while she had to stay at home with a new baby. Pam's marriage to her high school boyfriend lasted six years, and then they got divorced. And then, soon after, Pam married again. Her second husband was a baseball player turned carpenter named Mark Hupp. He was quiet. He let Pam call the shots. And he tended to accept whatever she said as truth— even if she was saying it over a prison phone. Pam and Mark had a son together, Travis. They moved to Naples, Florida. And then Pam's father died, and they moved back to Missouri to be closer to Pam's mother. People who knew Pam remember that when she moved back home, she was kind of a loner. She didn't make many new friends or really get back in touch with her old friends. It seemed like maybe she had found something to replace socialization. Money. Pam really valued money. She thought about money. She cared about money. She wasn't the sort of flashy money-obsessed broad that we've seen in previous episodes, like in the stories of Rose Marks or Griselda Blanco, women who drove fancy cars and dripped in diamonds. Pam was extremely cheap. She lived debt-free. She never went on vacation. She drove an old car. But frugal people can be just as obsessed with money as big spenders. As one of Pam's friends later said, when it comes to money, she short circuits. In order to make more money, Pam and Mark started flipping houses as a sort of side hustle. Apparently they were good at it. Years later, when Pam's daughter Sarah was all grown up and had gotten married, Sarah found a house, a fixer-upper, that she really wanted to buy. She was so excited, and she told her mother all about it. And Pam moved fast. She put in a low bid on her daughter's dream house, bought it right underneath Sarah's nose, flipped it, and turned a profit. That's cold, right? Prioritizing money over your own kid. That's ice cold. And this wouldn't be the only time that Pam prioritized profit over someone's, shall we say, well-being. Now, perhaps it's not surprising that a woman with money on the brain kept getting jobs at insurance offices. 
Her boss at a state farm office was very impressed with Pam. He noticed, as others did, that Pam never got involved in any drama. How refreshing. She had very good insights, human nature-wise, he said. A positive person, very level-headed. I never saw her mad. She saw a bigger picture, and she was very adept at office politics. Pam probably would have agreed with this assessment. She saw herself as someone who is good at reading her fellow humans. As she told a detective later, I just like to get a feeling of what people are like. To be perfectly honest, though, no drama Pam did have certain weird things that kind of swirled around her, like wisps of smoke. She hinted to her boss that she was involved with the FBI. She got fired from two separate insurance jobs for forging signatures. She claimed that she'd been in several accidents and had chronic pain, and she actually received disability checks every month. But even though she said she could hardly walk, she took Zumba classes and walked around like it was nothing. When she was nearby, people sometimes found that their cars were keyed. Someone who lived in her neighborhood found a pile of bloody animal bones in their yard. A few other neighbors received cruel anonymous letters. If these were swirls of suspicious smoke, it was unclear where the source of the fire was. Was it Pam? Or were these all just coincidences? Though Pam didn't have a ton of friends, she made one at that state farm job, a bubbly younger woman named Betsy Faria. The two of them eventually fell out of touch. But Pam seemed to keep tabs on Betsy from afar. Because when Betsy got bad news, Pam was suddenly right there. Let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsors. First up, Modern Fertility. Got big plans for the summer, guys. What about for next year? If any of your plans include trying for kids, there's an easy way to learn more about your body while thinking ahead, like a smart person. The Modern Fertility Hormone Test is a simple at-home finger prick that unlocks tons of insight into your reproductive health, from egg count to menopause timing to possible outcomes for egg freezing or IVF all good things to know if kids are in your future. Traditional testing with your doctor can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at $159, a fraction of the price. And obviously, I have a promo code for you. You just do the finger prick, mail it in with a prepaid label, and you'll get your personalized result within 10 days. And you can use your HSA or FSA if you have one. If you want kids today, or maybe one day in the future, clinically sound info about your body can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash criminalbroads. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the several hundred or even a thousand plus dollars it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash criminalbroads. Modernfertility.com slash criminalbroads. Our next sponsor, kind of thematically linked this week, guys, sort of, is Dipsy. 
Everyone needs an escape, but those can be hard to come by in this crazy world we live in. Enter Dipsy. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, erotic stories featuring characters that feel like real people and immersive scenarios so you feel like you're right there where the action is. You can listen to stories about hometown crushes, about sensual co-workers, about people who are just the way you ideally wish they would be. And it doesn't all have to be sexy stuff. If you need to wind down, Dipsy also has wellness sessions, sensual bedtime stories. Okay, I guess some of it is still sexy stuff. And soundscapes to help you relax before you drift off. Want to try it for free? For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash criminal broads. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash criminal broads. Dipsystories.com slash criminal broads. In 2010, Betsy received the devastating news that she had breast cancer. Enter Pam. It was kind of weird how quickly and thoroughly Pam re-entered Betsy's life. See, Betsy had tons of friends. Everybody loved her. But Pam ingratiated herself into Betsy's life as though they'd been best friends forever. She drove Betsy to every single one of her chemo sessions, which meant that if anyone else was hoping to have a private conversation with Betsy during those sessions, they couldn't. Pam would be right there, listening. Not even Betsy's own father could get a private audience with her. When Betsy learned that the cancer had spread to her liver, Pam started coming over almost every day. Even when Betsy told her not to show up, Pam was there. One day, Betsy texted Pam, saying that she had an old friend in town who was going to take her to chemo for a change, and that she wanted to spend some one-on-one time with this old friend, so she didn't need Pam to drive her. Pam texted back, bummer, and then drove to the treatment center anyway, and sat with Betsy and her old friend for the entire visit. Later, she pretended that she'd never even received Betsy's text. Betsy had a husband— His name was Russ. He liked to fish, ride motorcycles, and play slightly nerdy role-playing games with a little group of friends. He did his best to help Betsy deal with her diagnosis. In November of 2011, he took Betsy on a cruise, and he made plans for her to swim with the dolphins, which had always been a dream of hers. And he watched her friendship with Pam develop. Once she was diagnosed with cancer, a lot of people wanted to be with her, Russ said. I never had a problem with Pam personally. She was easy to talk to. But I could name half a dozen other people Betsy was closer to. For example, Betsy had invited her close friends on that cruise, and Pam wasn't one of them. So it was a little odd that Pam was hanging out with her every single day, right? Still, as Russ said, she was easy to talk to. She seemed nice. She was being helpful. And then Betsy did something shocking. She suddenly changed her life insurance plan. 
She and Pam went to a library to get the librarian to act as a witness, and this librarian watched as Betsy signed a document making Pam her sole beneficiary. In other words, if Betsy died, God forbid, Pam would get a whole lot of money. Five days later, Betsy was dead. And Pam knew exactly who had done it. It was her evil husband, Russ, that terrible, abusive man who made plans for his sick wife to swim with the dolphins. It was him. And Pam was happy to tell the police all about it. Russ Faria's life changed forever on December 27, 2011. That day was a Tuesday, which was the day of his weekly game night with his friends. Russ and his buddies liked to play role-playing games like Role Master or Talisman, and their nights together were pretty innocent. Let's just say that that night, Russ brought over two bottles of Snapple. So Betsy texted her husband that evening that he didn't need to pick her up because Pam was going to drive her home. And so Russ stayed at his friend's until 9 p.m. One of their usual game player friends was away that night. So instead of playing their usual games, they watched movies and smoked a bit of pot. Around 9 p.m., Russ left. He grabbed some food at Arby's and he drove home, expecting to find his wife asleep. He walked into their house. Betsy was on the living room floor. She was quiet but she wasn't asleep. Her wrists had been slashed. Her tongue was hanging out of her mouth. She had been stabbed 55 times, and one of her own kitchen knives was stuck in her throat. Russ called 911 and told them that his wife had killed herself. When the first responders arrived, they knew immediately that this wasn't a suicide— But Russ had seen the bloody wrists, and in a panic, he jumped to a wild conclusion. And Betsy had slashed her wrists once before, so Russ thought maybe she couldn't take the latest news about her cancer and had ended her own life. One of the officers who arrived on the scene noted that Russ was displaying all sorts of different emotions. Russell appeared to be going into a state of panic by having a hard time breathing and talking, the officer wrote. Fearing that Russ might pass out, this officer asked a paramedic to wrap him in a blanket. Eventually, he put Russ in the backseat of his cop car to keep him warm, and Russ calmed down there. And as the cop talked to him, asking him questions, Russ answered calmly and even laughed at points. He smoked two cigarettes as the cop watched him closely. Was this the behavior of a murderer? At another point, Russ teared up, saying he didn't know how he was going to tell his daughters. The cops took him into the station to interview him. When he was alone in the interview room, the camera caught him crying, praying, and saying, Betsy, Betsy. Was this the behavior of a murderer? Probably, the cops thought. Just over a week later, he was charged with first-degree murder. As detectives pulled together the case against Russ, they couldn't have asked for a better witness than that nice middle-aged blonde lady named Pam Hupp. 
She had plenty to say about the case, plenty to say about Russ and what a horrible man he was. According to Pam, Betsy had been trapped in an extremely abusive marriage with this dark, violent person who played games. The two of them had separated, oh, at least six or seven times in the time that Pam had known them. Betsy was actually sleeping with her ex. That's how much she hated her husband. And Russ was always making comments about how much money he'd get from Betsy's life insurance once she was dead. He was pompous, Pam insisted. Pompous. And Betsy was thinking about leaving him, but also she was thinking about moving them both into her mother's house to save her mother's house from being foreclosed. Oh, and she was afraid that Russ wasn't going to like that plan, but she was going to tell him that very night, and she was terrified that Russ might respond with fury. Who knows what Russ might have done? Oh, and also, Pam remembered one last story right before her interview ended, also, once Russ had tried to poison one of Betsy's Gatorades. If Russ cried and prayed on camera when he was alone in the interview room, Pam was the exact opposite. She just sat there, confident and quiet, no sign of emotion, all business, just trying to help. She told cops again and again what she'd done that night, how she'd dropped Betsy off and then driven home. The problem was that her stories were pretty inconsistent. First, she said that when she dropped Betsy off, she didn't go inside the house. Never mind, she did go inside, but she left Betsy tucked on the couch. No, Betsy walked her to the door. And then she called Betsy when she got home. No, she called when she was almost home. Oh, no, she called when she got to the highway. No, actually, she called even earlier than that, just because she was afraid she couldn't find her way home, even though she'd made the drive dozens of times. But never mind those details. Wasn't it so awful how Russ definitely killed his wife? The way authorities handled Betsy's murder was, quite frankly, absurd. Journalist Jeanette Cooperman wrote the definitive account of Pam Hupp for St. Louis Magazine back in 2017, and she unpacks their stunning incompetence well. Here's just one example. When detectives questioned Mark Hupp, Pam's husband, to verify Pam's story, they allowed Pam to be in the room with them. She did most of the talking. Typical Pam. Here's another example. Detectives gave Russ a polygraph test, or said that they did, but Russ's defense lawyer was never able to see the raw data of this supposed polygraph that Russ supposedly failed. Here's a third example. The prosecutor and the lead investigator might have been sleeping together, which would mean that the lead investigator had a very personal reason to help the prosecutor get the result she wanted. It was pretty clear that the cops and the prosecutor had decided quickly that the husband did it, and from then on, they looked only at the husband. Never mind that Russ had a fantastic alibi that night. He had four friends who'd been with him all night, and he even had a receipt from the Arby's that he stopped at on the way home. Never mind that Pam Hupp was the new beneficiary for Betsy's life insurance and that she didn't have an alibi at all. The cops refused to look at Pam. They only had eyes for Russ. Russ's defense lawyer was looking at Pam, though. He thought she was suspicious as all get out. It wasn't just the life insurance and the inconsistencies in her story and the lack of alibi. There were other things. She said she'd be happy to take a polygraph test. 
And then she got a doctor to write her a note saying she had a, quote, medical condition and couldn't do it. Then she lied about ever asking her doctor to write that note. And she blamed all inconsistencies and contradictions on that vague medical condition. At one point, the defense lawyer deposed her and asked, what's your head injury? And she responded, I have no idea. Come on, thought the defense lawyer. No one else thinks this woman is acting extremely shady. But still, Russ was the one on trial for Betsy's brutal murder, not Pam. His trial began in the late fall of 2013. His prosecutor painted an ominous picture of premeditated murder, saying that Russ had suggested the murder months or even years earlier to his nerdy little role-playing game buddies because murdering Betsy would be, and I quote, the ultimate role play. The prosecutor argued that Russ's friends were all aware of the plot and that they even helped him carry it out. That receipt from Arby's? One of his friends brought it to Russ after the murder was complete. Oh, and why didn't Russ have a single spot of blood on his clothes? The murderer would have been drenched in blood after all those 55 stab wounds, but Russ had been wearing the same clothes all night. He was wearing them earlier, according to security camera footage, and he was wearing them when the first responders arrived. Never fear, because the prosecutor had an explanation. Like the old rumor about Lizzie Borden, Russ had killed Betsy while he was naked. The defense poked what holes they could into this mad theory, but their hands were tied because they weren't allowed to bring up Pam. They couldn't mention that she was the one who got all of Betsy's life insurance money. They couldn't paint her as a suspect. And so Russ's lawyer talked about how Russ's game nights were innocent and nerdy and how this hadn't actually been a crime of passion. The stab wounds in poor Betsy's body were very, very clean. They had probably been made after she was dead. These were not stab wounds made by a furious husband who had turned on his wife. These were very careful stab wounds made by someone who was trying to make it look like a furious husband had turned on his wife. It didn't work. The jury found Russ guilty. The judge gave him life without parole. Pam Hupp was sitting pretty. She'd gotten $150,000 from her poor murdered friend Betsy's life insurance policy. She bought a new house. She sold it for a profit. She bought another one. Okay, so things weren't all fun and games in Pam's world. Not only had she lost her dear, beloved best friend Betsy because someone had stabbed her 55 times, which was, quite frankly, just rude, but Pam's life had been touched by another tragedy. Her mother, Shirley, had died. Pam told people that she died of Alzheimer's, but um, that wasn't technically true. Shirley had died by falling off a balcony. Shirley had an apartment on the third floor of an assisted living facility. The apartment had a little balcony with flowers and a couple of garden gnomes on it. 
Shirley was starting to show signs of dementia, but the caretakers at the facility kept an eye on her, of course. On October 30th, 2013, while Russ's trial was still going on, Pam brought her dear old mother back to the apartment and told those caretakers not to expect her for dinner or breakfast the next day. Around lunchtime the next day, a housekeeper discovered that Shirley's balcony railings were broken. But they were broken in a really odd way. Two of them had fallen off completely, but the others were just bent outward. And the top part of the rail, the guardrail, was fine. So the balcony railing basically had a little hole in it. A hole just big enough for a frail elderly woman to fall through. Below the hole, Shirley's body lay on the grass. She had eight times the normal amount of Ambien in her system. Inside, on the wall of Shirley's apartment, there were photos of her relatives and a decal above them that read, Family is a gift that lives forever. Poor Pam. To lose her mother like that so suddenly. Of course, there was her mother's life insurance payout to collect, but Pam was busy with other things. It's unclear how much money Pam actually got from her mother's death, though she once said that she got $100,000, and another time she referred to it as half a million. Betsy's daughters had decided to sue Pam since she'd collected their mother's life insurance money, and as the lawsuit for this civil trial moved forward, Pam was deposed. And during this deposition, she said something that shocked that lawyer so much that he told Russ's defense lawyer about it. Here's what she said. For a long time, Pam had insisted that she had put the money from Betsy's life insurance into a trust fund for Betsy's daughters so that it would be given to them if they behaved, if they didn't drink or party, etc. But now, in this deposition, Pam admitted that she had taken all of the money back out of that trust. She never gave the daughters a dime. When Russ's defense lawyer heard this, he thought, aha. It was so obvious that Pam had really wanted that life insurance money. She wasn't just hanging on to it to help the children of a dear deceased friend. She wanted that money. If you didn't know any better, you might call that money a motive. With this fresh evidence, Russ was able to get a new trial. But Pam wasn't about to let him get off that easy. She showed up guns blazing with two wild news stories to tell. First, she told detectives that she she hadn't just been friends with Betsy. They had been lovers. Pam explained that Betsy was so traumatized by Russ that she'd turned to Pam. And Pam had, quote, replaced what a husband would be. Someone who knew Pam let out a snort when journalist Jeanette Cooperman told them this anecdote. Pam was the most homophobic person I'd ever met, they said. She'd say, that's not normal. That's not right. Now, not only was Pam implying that Betsy had wanted her to have all that money because they were basically soulmates, she was hinting that Russ had killed Betsy because he discovered their torrid affair. 
And that wasn't Pam's only new development. She also claimed to have recovered a memory from that night. Oh, yes. She was now remembering that she had seen Russ at the crime scene. Never mind that she'd said numerous times that she didn't see him that night. Now she was saying she had totally seen him. And it didn't matter that she was contradicting herself because, remember, she had a brain injury. How could she be expected to keep her story straight? As Pam herself said, she had the brain of a boxer. Quote, severe head injuries, three accidents in a row, plus the ambient all those years, because you can't sleep with a head injury. As Russ's new trial loomed, his defense lawyer found a bit of new evidence. For years, Pam had been telling authorities that Betsy sent her an email saying that she was terribly afraid of Russ, but Pam had never received the email, but Betsy had told her about the email, and so the police should definitely look on Betsy's computer because the email was totally there. And how did Pam know all this? Because uh, Betsy told her. So two weeks before Russ's new trial, the supposed email was finally located as a Word document on Betsy's computer. Here's what it said. I know we talked about this yesterday, but I feel I really need you to believe me. I really do feel that Russ is going to do something to me. He continued to tell me how much money he would make after I die. Last night was the worst. I fell asleep on the couch while watching TV. I woke up to Russ holding a pillow over my face. He said that he wanted me to know what dying feels like. I need to change my life insurance. Do you think I could put it in your name and you could help my daughters when they need it? If something happens to me, would you please show this to the police? Wow. What an email, right? How convenient that it clearly points to Russ as the murderer and to innocent Pam as the friend who's just trying to help. Unfortunately for Pam, when forensic computer experts looked at this Microsoft Word document, they found all sorts of suspicious things. The author was listed as unknown, not as Betsy. Someone had tried to open Microsoft Outlook to email the document, but Betsy didn't use Microsoft Outlook. And that same person had performed a search on the computer for Betsy's signature perhaps to try and attach it to the bottom of the document, you know, to make it look like Betsy had actually written it. Huh. Wonder who that could have been. Russ's new trial started in the fall of 2015. By then, Russ had served two years of his life sentence. Finally, his defense lawyer was allowed to bring in evidence that implicated Pam Hupp as a suspect. The judge referred to the past investigation as rather disturbing. And... He acquitted Russ, four years after he walked in on his wife's body lying on their living room floor with a knife in her throat that had been put there by someone else. Russ had been officially declared innocent, but the prosecutor said she wasn't going to charge anyone else for Betsy's murder. This made Russ's defense lawyer nervous. He didn't trust Pam Hupp. He hadn't trusted her for years. He was totally convinced that she had killed Betsy Faria. And what, she was just going to get away with it? 
In fact, he was so worried about what might happen if Pam walked free that he actually called the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Missouri and told them they needed to look into the case again. Because if they didn't, he said, somebody else is going to die. And he was right. Pam must have known that her head was getting close to the chopping block, so to speak. People were sniffing around Betsy's murder again. Dateline kept airing episodes on the case, which meant that more and more people knew the name Pam Hupp, which wasn't what Pam Hupp wanted. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Missouri had indeed started to review the case. And Russ was suing three of the detectives who worked on the original case, saying that among other things, they, quote, failed to investigate the other obvious suspect. So Pam needed to make herself look extra innocent and fast. Thankfully, she had a plan. You know the old design principle, keep it simple, stupid? Apparently Pam had never heard that because this plan was as complicated as they come. But she probably thought it was genius. On August 10th, 2016, Pam drove by the house of a woman named Carol McAfee and said, Do you babysit? Carol thought that was a bizarre question. Who went around looking for a babysitter that way? She responded, and these are her own words, Nah, bitch, I don't babysit. So Pam quickly abandoned the babysitter storyline and said that uh, she was a producer for Dateline and she needed someone to do a bit of acting for her. They were going to reenact a 911 call. It paid $1,000, cash, under the table. She said she was from Chicago and that she'd drive Carol to the place where they were filming, but that Carol couldn't bring her cell phone, her wallet, or her keys because, quote, the producers don't like clutter. Now, Carol knew that something was up. Pam didn't have a Chicago accent. Her car had Missouri plates. And she was acting incredibly sketchy. What sort of Dateline producer opens the conversation by saying, do you babysit? But Carol decided to go along with it. I knew she was up to something, Carol said later. My thought was, if you're going to hurt somebody, I'm going to make damn sure it's not a kid. So she said, sure, I'll come with you. She popped back into her house to put away her dog. She put a kitchen knife in her pocket and slipped a pocket knife up one of her sleeves, and she got into Pam's car. They drove off. But when Pam started driving her towards a different area of town than the one she'd initially described, Carol got the heebie-jeebies. This woman was up to something weird. She told Pam that she needed to go back home to lock up the house. Pam drove her back home. There, Carol said that, uh, actually, she couldn't do the 911 call reenactment because her son had just gotten sick. Pam protested, but then Pam noticed something. Carol's house had a surveillance camera, and it was pointing right at her. She drove away. And she looked for someone else. She tried the same story on a man named Brent Charlton, who told her he was busy. Pam replied, are you sure? It's only going to take a minute. But Brent was on the clock, and there was no way he was going to skip work for this Dateline producer with no business card. Six days later, Pam tried her Dateline story for a third time. And this time, horribly, it worked. Her new target was a 33-year-old man named Louis Gumpenberger. 
Lewis had been in a terrible car crash years earlier, and now he had limited mental and physical capabilities. His pastor described him as eager to please and completely gullible. He lived with his mom, and he kept to himself. He had a son. First, Pam drove to a Dollar Tree and bought a knife. Then she drove by Lewis's house and gave him the old Dateline story. He believed her. Lewis drove with Pam back to her house. She lured him inside, and she took out a gun. She must have explained to him that this was all part of the reenactment. She called 911 twice, hanging up without saying anything, and then she called a third time and began what Lewis must have thought was the reenactment call. On this call, she tells the dispatcher that someone has broken into her house. She yells very fakely, Help! Help! You can hear Lewis talking as though he's reading a script. She yells at one point that she's not going to get inside his vehicle. And so, then, as the dispatcher listened to all of this, Pam shot poor Lewis five times. He had been standing there thinking that the whole thing was an act. But it wasn't an act at all. The gun was real, and the bullets found their mark. Before police arrived, Pam planted $900 and a note on Lewis's body. The note was a list of instructions for killing Pam. She had designed it to sort of make it look like Russ or one of his friends was trying to get Betsy's life insurance money back. Yeah, the whole thing was that convoluted. The note had lines like, Kidnap Hup, get Russ's money from Hup at her bank, and kill Hup. And take Hup back to house and get rid of her. Make it look like Russ's wife. Make sure knife sticking out of neck. You know, because all criminals leave extensive written instructions when they're hiring a hitman. When police asked Pam who Russ was, she pretended that she didn't know anyone named Russ. She had left the Dollar Tree knife in her car, saying that Lewis had used it to threaten her, and detectives noticed a weird detail. She left it blade down in the little gap beside her car seat, which is exactly how she stored her knives at home. She stored them blade down in the gap between her stove and her counter, like a psychopath. Anyway, Pam's wacky tale about how Lewis had kidnapped her fell apart like an Oreo in a glass of milk. Since she'd called 911 three times, the dispatchers were listening extra closely to that third call, and they noticed that the call started with a few seconds of silence, which didn't make any sense if a live break-in had actually been happening. The prosecutor later said that the 911 call itself was like something cooked up by a middle school student. Isn't it ironic? The call was like a bad Dateline script. A week after slaughtering Lewis, Pam was arrested and charged with his murder. Police read her her rights and then left the room to contact her lawyers. Pam waited alone in the room for a few minutes. Then she pretended to reach for a water bottle on the table, but instead she grabbed a pen that was sort of behind the water bottle and quickly hid it in her jeans. A few minutes later, she was escorted to the bathroom, where she whipped out the pen and stabbed herself multiple times in the wrist and neck. The suicide attempt didn't work. 
Instead, Pam got her mugshot taken with huge white bandages stuck to either side of her neck. Her expression is almost a grin. The media coverage of Pam Hop was intense as her trial loomed. People were already interested in her because of the Dateline episodes about Betsy's death. And when news of this latest killing broke, well, let's just say tensions were running so high that the judge decided Pam's jurors needed to be shipped in from the other side of the state. There was no impartial juror to be found in Pam's neck of the woods. Things heated up even further when police changed the manner of death for Pam's mother, Shirley, from accidental to undetermined. But those who hoped for a juicy trial full of revelations were disappointed. In June of 2019, Pam pled guilty so that the prosecutors would drop the death penalty. She used the Alford plea, that unusual little maneuver where the defendant admits that there is enough evidence against them to probably find them guilty, but at the same time they still maintain that they're innocent. Why didn't she just take a traditional guilty plea? Her prosecutor thinks she didn't have the courage to say she did it. Pam claims she took the Alford plea to spare her family the indignity of an ugly trial. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole, the same sentence originally given to Russ. In 2020, Louis Gumpenberger's mother sued Pam and won. She didn't want Pam to profit off her fame, she said. She took the stand and she shook so hard that the podium itself shook too. She talked about Louis's son, who was 15, and how he still had nightmares four years later. The judge awarded her $3 million. As far as the other lawsuits went, Russ reached a $2.05 million settlement with the police who arrested him and who never looked twice at Pam. And from prison, Pam complained on the phone to her husband that people were calling her Ted Bundy. Was Pam, like Bundy, a serial killer? She certainly fits the FBI's definition, if you believe that she killed Betsy, then her mother, then Lewis. And people definitely thought that, like Bundy, she was evil. A lot of people thought that, from the cops to her neighbors to people on Reddit who called her a monster and wrote things like, Pam Hupp is a vile creature who preys upon the weak and vulnerable. Jeanette Cooperman, the journalist who wrote the long article about Pam in 2017, kept getting asked if she was going to write a book about this case, a book about the twisted mind of this blonde Midwesterner. But Jeanette said she didn't want to, because even after all that research, she found Pam boring. Yes, boring. Jeanette wrote in another article that she thought Pam was evil, but that evil has an empty core. As she wrote, that empty core is utterly uninteresting. I like people who are at war with the dark parts of themselves, who are complicated tangles of saint and sinner. In all those months of research, I found nothing redeeming in Hupp's personality, except perhaps a cheerful ability to steer clear of petty drama. She did not need to snipe or stew. 
she could stage far more compelling dramas inside her head. In that same article, Jeanette poses an interesting theory about why exactly Pam was evil. Nature? Nurture? My favorite theory, she wrote, was the slim but wonderfully paradoxical possibility that the head injuries Hupp used as an excuse for her fuzzy memory and countless self-contradictions had actually, unbeknownst to her, damaged her brain. A few zaps to the frontal cortex could conceivably remove not only inhibition, but the ability to empathize and therefore to recognize a moral wrong. Today, Pam is in prison at Chillicothe Correctional Institution and will be for the rest of her life. Last fall, her long-suffering husband finally filed for divorce. The marriage is irretrievably broken, said the divorce filing. The case of Betsy's murder has been reopened, and investigators have been finding new evidence as recently as last week. The new prosecutor, who took over in 2019, says that this investigation will correct a lot of wrongs from the previous investigation. During that previous one, he says, quote, There were leads that came in that were credible leads that were largely ignored if they didn't fit an investigative narrative. Investigators would go to meet with witnesses. Those witnesses would say, hey, we also tried to say we had additional information and it was largely ignored by law enforcement at the time and prosecutors. The story of Pam Hupp is a story with a lot of unbelievable twists, and there may be more to come. But for now, here's one final twist, and this one's kind of satisfying. Russ Faria, who'd walked in to see his wife dead on the floor, who'd been tried twice for her murder, and who at one point had been in prison thinking he might just spend the rest of his life there, Russ Faria has found love again. His girlfriend is none other than Carol McAfee, the woman who Pam tried to lure into her car with her fake Dateline producer story, the woman who Pam tried to kill. Out of all this bad and this bad, bad evil person, I mean, she's evil incarnate, says Russ. If it weren't for her, I wouldn't have met this lovely lady here. Now, if everything had gone according to Pam's plans... Carol would be six feet underground with five bullet holes in her body, and Russ would be rotting in prison for life, and Pam would be free, free to spend her life insurance money on whatever her narrow, diabolical, boring little mind could dream up. But things didn't go according to Pam's plan. As Carol said, I think for Christmas... We ought to send her a thank you card with our picture. The end. Goodbye, Pam. Wow. Pretty irritating, to put it mildly, to think that if cops and prosecutors hadn't been so convinced that the husband did it in the case of Betsy's murder, that several lives could have been saved. 
As Russ's defense lawyer said, someone else is going to die. And what do you know? Someone did. Pam Hupp is, was, as we see, a dangerous woman, someone who was so determined to get what she wanted that she was not afraid to kill. Okay, I guess, you know, technically she's only been in prison for one murder, but I think it's pretty obvious from the episode that I strongly suspect her of the other two. And can we talk about how different each of the murders was? I mean, it definitely puts her in a different category than these famous serial killers like Bundy or John Wayne Gacy who had their technique. Pam Hupp, I think, is something different, not killing for gratification, but just truly like killing as a solution to problems or like a way to get ahead in the world, which is chilling in a totally different way. Whoa. I didn't think I had any more thoughts on Pam Hupp after writing like 6,600 words on her. And look at me going off on her now. Um, Email me, criminalbroads at gmail.com. What are your thoughts on Pam Hupp? If you live in St. Louis, Molly, tell me what the vibe on the street is. Are people still talking about her? Have people moved on to something else? Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, I'd like to thank this week's patron, the mysterious, the evocative, Jay. Thank you for supporting the podcast, Jay. Everyone else, you can go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads to support the pod. And run, don't walk to instagram.com slash criminalbroads because you know you need to see Pam Hupp's mugshot. Don't pretend like you don't need to see it. If you're not on Instagram, just Google Pam Hupp mugshot and you'll see what I mean. It's like there are certain details about this case that like are funny. Like they make me want to laugh because they're so ridiculous. Um, you know, and then you realize, and this mugshot is one of those. I mean, she just looks so silly. She just looks so silly. And she looks so like, other than the bandages on her neck and the fact that it's a mugshot, she just looks like someone you would run into in the aisles of Jewel Osco. I feel like she'd be getting a really sweet white wine that's like a little bit blended with juice um, and that's on sale, which is fine. Like people are allowed to drink that, but I just feel like that's what I like. I would see Pam Hupp getting. Um, And so anyway, that's like funny when I see the mugshot. That vibe is hilarious to me. And then, of course, it all comes rushing back. Like this is a dangerous woman. It doesn't matter that she has everyone's mom's haircut. This is a dangerous woman who killed one, two, three people. Anyway, you'll see the mugshot and other photos of her and her various victims on Instagram.com slash criminal broads. All right. Thank you all so much. Um, next week's case is TBD, but you'll hear it next week. And then the week after that, we're going to do a really twisty case. Ugh. Okay, do I call every episode twisty? Okay, but this one's extra twisty, okay? It's going to take a lot of research, so I need a couple weeks to gear up for it. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you're having a great summer. Talk to you next time. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.